Welcome to the Food Compass Podcast. Today, we're joined with some guests who you may remember from our last episode to continue our discussion into the future of food. Today, we're diving a little deeper. We'll discuss challenges facing the food and ag system from the farms where food is grown to meeting consumer demands and preferences. Here's Dan Burdett, a lifelong agribusiness leader. I think what's changing is the, the demand that's being placed on the entire food production system over time. Uh, we're all consumers and we all tend to think from our consumer lens. We think about the food we eat. We think about it in terms of taste, health, maybe environmental impact. Often it's simply from the perspective of what's gonna be on the menu or what needs to be on the grocery list. But if we think more globally about it and we consider the long-term challenges that all of us must understand, it's very significant. It's estimated that the global population growth will add 2 billion more people to the planet by 2050. And some of us have heard that number before. The growth rate really is hard to grasp. Um, It's like adding the entire population of the United States to the planet six times. And I think about that. And I think about how the world that my son and his children will live in will be a very different world than the one we grew up in. And agricultural production needs to feed and clothe all those people. And agricultural production is a consumer of natural resources like clean air and water and soil and land. And these resources are not keeping pace with the population growth. In fact, you can kind of think of it as a shrinking planet. Uh, They are in decline. The critical challenge we must consider is how do we feed and clothe the future world while protecting our planet, reducing The environmental impact of farming is vital to nourish a growing population without starving the planet. There's no question that science and technology will play an important role in meeting the challenge. And the challenge is one of how do we increase agricultural productivity while minimizing the environmental impact. And so what's changing, I think, is just the incredible pressure that is being placed on the whole food production system. What Dan said is, is a big passion of mine. You know, this whole idea of 9 billion 2050 is, uh, is one of those things that keeps you awake at night when you think about it. That's Gabe Guzmini, co-producer of the Food Compass podcast and founder and CEO of the Plant Pathways Company. But what's interesting to me is also that we know already that we're going to fall short of some of the expectation for that target. So then the question becomes also, how do we accelerate the pace of technology deployment and adoption and acceptance by the consumer, which is fundamental? So that when we start looking at nine and a half billion in 2050, whatever is the number, uh, we don't have the same problem or worrying about falling short because we have many more tools available uh, to make it because population growth probably will continue to increase and the resources will continue to decrease. One of the changes that 
uh, I come across a lot in the work that I'm doing now is farmland loss. That's Beth Sauerhaft, a sustainability leader at the American Farmland Trust. So between 2001 and 2016, 11 million acres of farm and ranch land were converted to urban and highly developed land use or low density residential land use. So that's about 2000 acres of ag land a day. And some of this is our most productive, versatile and resilient land. So um, this has been going on for years, but we can also think about it in very current terms in the last what is it, 15 or 12 to 15 months that we've all been experiencing this pandemic. And we either, I bet everybody here probably knows somebody who has left an urban area and moved to a peri-urban or rural area. And we know why we're doing it. You know, people want to have their space where they can breathe, their, their kids can play and be outside and not have to be worried about contracting a virus from their neighbors. But there's some very real consequences of that. And, and think of the housing markets in your neighborhoods, which have become so competitive now. And this kind of movement really puts pressure on agricultural lands, because of course, they're the places people want to live in. We see that states have, many states are responding to this threat, and all the states can do that, and they must do more. Um, many are doing this through with a whole suite of policies that they're enacting and linking these to thinking about how they protect farmland, support farm viability, as well as transferring land to the next generation of farmers and ranchers. So why should the public care? Well, this is, of course, tied to our food supply. It's tied to food security, food access, nutritional security. It's tied to a lot of the raw materials that are used in clothing. It's tied to fuel. So we should be asking, what are the policies that seem to work to pr help protect agricultural land and reduce the rate of farmland conversion? We should learn about the policies that are enacted in our state or country and um, see where there's an opportunity for, to advocate for additional policies or changing in policies. We should learn more about smart growth and zoning regulations so that can on the one hand, protect farmland. They can also sort of smartly contain development. They can offset future greenhouse gas emissions because quite a bit more greenhouse gas emissions come from urban areas than from rural farmland areas. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of issues there to unpack and to get engaged with. As Dan Burdett put it, the population is getting bigger, but the world, at least in terms of available resources, is getting smaller. This is a major challenge facing the food and ag system, and Beth pointed out some policy solutions that aim to preserve one of the most vital components of agricultural production, farmland. It's important to remember that what happens on a farm has downstream impacts on the rest of the food system. Jason Lusk, an expert agricultural economist from Purdue University, provides insights on how changes in farming have impacts for consumers. I think one of the big changes that have occurred over the last century is the affordability of food. Um, we go back a hundred years ago, we were spending about, a, at least in this country, in the United States, we were spending about a quarter of our income on food. Today, it's less than 10%. Uh, 
uh, I think that's a wonderful change. It, it means that at least 90% of our income to spend and all the other things in life that we, we get to enjoy. What's brought about that increased affordability? It's technology adoption on the farm. It's, uh, it's increases in size and scale and scope of those farms. And I know there are people that are concerned about those aspects. And I think it's important to have and understand those trade-offs. We can have a farm uh, farm system that looks like it did 100 years ago, but we'd have food that was more expensive uh, like it was 100 years ago relative to our income. Um, one of the other wonderful things to think about our food being more affordable is we can demand new things out of our food system. If I compare the things I eat now to what I ate when I was a poor college student, I eat a lot differently now. Why? Because I can afford it. And I think as a country, we demand new things out of our food system, uh, thanks in part to some of that technology that made food more affordable to us. And so I think the other change that we see in more recent years is this ever evolving, some people might call it a virtuous cycle. Other people might call it a bit of a head a treadmill, but you know, consumers demanded organic. And then the new uh, the new attribute they wanted out of their food system was local. And then the new attribute they wanted their food system these days is uh, are things like uh, regenerative or plant-based. So I think there's a constant striving on the behalf of consumers to eat things they think are, are better for them and better for the environment. And I think the things that are really changing here in the last decade or so is our ability to measure outcomes related to environment and health through sensors in the soil, through uh, satellite images, and then to be able to convey and transmit that information throughout the supply chain. And I think that's a really exciting development because instead of having to you know, form halos around foods that might have certain labels, you know, I think the hope and the ideal is maybe one day we can have objective scientific uh, metrics around the actual impacts, whether it's uh, climate change, water use, land use on foods we're eating. I think that's a really exciting development that's being brought about by our ability to measure and transmit information. Carmen Fernholtz, an organic farmer from Western Minnesota, keeps the consumer front of mind throughout the operation on his farm. 15 or so years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, attend a session at the University of Minnesota where the speaker talked about, uh, about people and about demographics and what the speaker was mentioning is he said the baby boomers are soon going to be reaching 50, 55, 60 years old. And he said, a strange thing happens when people reach that age. They start watching what they put in their mouths. And that comment has, has stuck with me. And I have watched that change actually take place across, across the farming communities that I have been involved in. And I think what I'm really seeing it taking place is uh, in the sense that consumers are really becoming much more aware of the relationship between food and health they are concerned about what they are putting in their mouths. And, and this is changing uh, the way food is being produced. I think the other thing is that because they are concerned about that, almost a natural transition for them is, well then how is this food produced? Where is it produced? What are the practices 
that are engaged in when this food is being produced. And so what is happening is the consumer is more connecting themselves to the land almost through default because they want to find out how this food is produced. And of course, uh, that uh, comes down then to the identity preserved uh, part of food and uh, where it's come from. What does the food do to the land? What does it do to the communities? And when people, and I've seen this, when people start understanding how food is produced, they really want to become involved with it and want to become part of the policy making that eventually impacts their thoughts and ideas. So to me, it's really a, a deeper connection between the consumer and the food producer that continues to grow. And I see it on a daily basis uh, from people that start calling me about how my farming is taking place here in Western Minnesota. Carmen, I think you're bang on. You know, the consumer and the educational aspect of, uh, you know, consumers are coming to our restaurants now and they're coming for a treat. That's Chef Elaine Bosse. As a culinary expert, he's constantly thinking about consumers' interactions with food. They used to come to our restaurant to get fuel in a way. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but the consumers are coming to our restaurant. They want to know the source of where the product is coming from, the sustainability of where the product is coming from, and so on and so forth. So you're seeing less and less big menus, big corporates, restaurants, and whatever you're seeing more of that hands-on ma and pa, if you want to describe it that way, and where everything is in the coming from the right source. A simple thing as, you know, a crooked carrot that the consumer will not accept is really starting to disappear. And I mean that, you know exactly what I'm saying when I'm talking about the crooked carrots. I mean, Europe started about five, six years ago, especially in France, having bins in their grocery store where crooked vegetables would go versus non-crooked vegetables and 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 the trend is coming our way it's slow it's really really slow because we're somehow brainstormed that we need to have a carrot that's perfectly straight that's this size around and that's the end of it it's the same as the classification on the agricultural aspect of onions i mean i one of my big client is an agri food grower uh, here in atlantic canada and they produce 18 to 20 million pounds of onions a year. And their onions, they're gods, they're perfect. They have to grow it at 2.5 inches to three inches. Otherwise it goes into smaller onions or larger onions for restaurants. And to me that I'm always, when I meet with them, I always say, let's do a chef inspired onion for the market and sell all those little onions at a premium because they'll buy them. The chef tells them it's the quality onion you should get. But then we're having the same problem with these crooked vegetables. And I'm using that as a, as a platform to be funny. But at the end of the day, the average consumer needs to know that the grocery store giant that they're buying from will not accept from the farmer anything but so what gets plowed under 
to me is the food waste aspect of things is definitely a big, big issue that could help in many, many different facets. And if we just educated our people, it's okay to eat a carrot that's not perfect. Things would go a long way. But to go back to the restaurant aspect, the consumer is now going to the restaurant, but it's a treat. And yes, they will eat something that they're not used to eating at home. And that is the inevitable butter cream bacon. You know, like, there's no question. We don't eat bacon or cream or butter at home like we used to. But when we go to a restaurant, we expect it. So it's difficult for a restaurant owner at this point in time. Where do you find the balance of having well-sourced and flavors, right? Because they don't want to come to your restaurant and you to tell them, you know, we use nothing but this, 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 and this. They are going for a treat. They hear that at home constantly. So there's a balance and that's, a lo- that's lost at this point. But I truly believe food waste is our problem that could help. I'm not saying it's going to solve our problem, but I'm definitely saying that it could help our problem. You know, Alan, I, I think it, it's very interesting what you said, because to me, food waste is one of those uh, uh, domino pieces that, that creates initial reaction. Here's Gabe diving deeper into the issue of food waste. Uh, by that, I mean that, you know, people usually think food waste uh, being what they throw away uh, out of the refrigerator. And that, to be honest, yeah, it's, you know, it's a pity, but at the end, it's irrelevant. Um, where the big issue is with food waste is what gets wasted further upstream in the value chain at the farm, at the grocery store, as you said, because not only creates additional waste to be disposed of, but also turns immediately into a loss of income for somebody along the value chain. Uh, whether it's the farmer that can't sell their product because, uh, as you said, you know, they are 2.35 inches instead of 2.5 inches. And all of a sudden they have a load rejected and they got to pay for the, all the transportation to get back on farm and then feed it to their hogs or something. Um, or whether it's the grocery store that all of a sudden experiences 20% more waste uh, on their shelf than usual and needs to get rid of it, pay for it, hire people to clean up the aisle and make it look nice. So it, it really has a, a repercussion that's quite significant. Uh, the other point that I think it's interesting on what you said is that often, um, it seems to me at least, and maybe, maybe Jason later can, with, with more of an expert in consumer trends, can tell me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems to me that, that as consumers, we tend to associate the visu- visual aspect of the food with the health of the food that we're eating. And often that's not the case. Um, you know, something can look really pretty, but being more neutral than something else that's more beneficial to you. That's hopefully, you know, the whole concept of how we, we judge something that's healthy for us, that's been produced responsibly, uh, that hasn't damaged the environment by the time it got to our table, etc. Hopefully that will become part of our podcast as well, because I think it ties together a lot of the topics that we've been touching on today. A purple color potato when it's a russet size big potato, it's something that nobody wants because it looks like could be rotten or you know looks kind of dirty because it's got that deep purple color. But then we go and pay several cents a piece for a little purple potato that's about this big 
in a bag with rather 30 little potatoes where the package costs more than the potatoes inside just because it looks nice in that mix of colors. So here is another nonsense, and, and I fall into that myself. I buy the little potatoes because they look cute, but I shouldn't. Uh, but at the end of the day, these are the issues that, that I think mislead us as consumers, even when, when we would like to do the right thing. So learning more about how do we think about what's right and what, what's right for me, what's right for the environment, what's right for the farmer versus what may be a bit silly uh, could, be, could be helpful. Here's Mallory Dimmitt, who leads strategic development at Likes Brothers Farms. I think the ever-evolving um, consumer choices and preferences you know, ultimately drive the production decisions of, of what gets grown where. And, um, and, and we see that, right? So the trend or desire for healthful food, more nutrient-dense food produced locally, um, produced sustainably, but also available all year round. Um, and with a story behind that food, right, or the production or the company and their ESG commitments um, is, is the kind of... Um, world that we're in now. And it does ultimately translate into, you know, what's being grown where so that it is available um, for online ordering, but also in your local neighborhood market. And so um, when that that sort of filters all the way down to the choices that traditional growers are, you know, what they're what they're planting and how that crop mix is is evolving. One of the concerns I have is if you, you look at the location of of uh, uh, consumption and the location of production, there's some massive changes that have taken place over the last 50 years. That's Phil Party, an agricultural economist from the University of Minnesota. And there's some concerns about uh, the future as you look at, at that dynamic between uh, consumption and production. Just to give you an example, um, uh, back uh, in the early 60s, Around 44% of the entire world's agricultural output by value is produced in the high-income countries. So that, that's a really big chunk of value. Um, now, that's uh, less than a quarter is produced in the high-income countries. Uh, almost a quarter of the entire world's agricultural production takes place in one country, China. Uh, and that's a three-fold increase by value in real terms in the amount of output in China over that 60 or 70 year period. And so whilst a large increase in population in Asia has been matched by a pretty substantial increase in uh, production in Asia, that's not true in sub-Saharan Africa. So if you look in these projections going forward of that additional billion mouths to feed, over a billion of those extra, uh, sorry, the the extra two billion mouths to feed, over half of those mouths are going to occur in sub-Saharan Africa alone. But if you look at the production trends in Africa uh, uh, 50, 60 years ago versus now, their global share of production has barely increased. It's gone from 5.6% to um, 7.2%. You know, the other dynamic key again to recognise is people don't realise how much crops and agricultural production moves. You think it's a very static sort of phenomena. Um, we've done some work even in the US that, you know, I've talked about these big spatial shifts globally from country to country, even within a country, the location of agriculture changes a lot. So the average corn plant picked up its stalks and, and trundled uh, uh, 300 kilometres or more in a northwesterly direction over the last 100 years. So we've, we've actually moved the location of production in agriculture 
say, for corn, for example, uh, towards Canada, uh, heading up your way, Alan, uh, away, away from the equator. We've done some work in Brazil over the last 100 years, and the average corn plant in Brazil's moved over 450 kilometres, but also in a northerly direction, which is really interesting to me because that means in the US, corn's been moving away from the equator, in Brazil, it's been moving towards the equator. And so there's some really deep things to think about with respect to the, the relationship between production and climate and the ability, I think, as Jason said, the role of innovation and technical change. There was a lot of innovation going in to corn production systems in Brazil that facilitated movement and productivity growth, uh, positive productivity growth as in the US, but movement in a totally different direction. Um, and so there's cause for optimism and concern in this global movement that there is evidence in history that we have been able to inject technology into agricultural production to facilitate continued productivity growth with movement. But what we're not seeing is a, is a sustained trajectory of productivity growth in Africa at the moment. In this episode, we identified some of the biggest challenges to the food system. From increased demand on our shrinking farmland resources to changes in consumer preferences, there are plenty of forces impacting the future of food. The Food Compass podcast will continue to explore these forces, as well as the major opportunities throughout the food system. Join us next time for more insights on the future of food. The Food Compass will lead the way. Interested in getting involved? Please follow us on our socials linked in the description below to keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. If you have any questions or would like us to check out a particular topic, send us an email at thefoodcompasspodcast at gmail.com. Also, please share this information as widely as possible. We really appreciate that effort as we try to grow our listener base. None of this is possible without you, our listeners, and we're excited to have you on board. Thanks for listening. Signing off until next time, this has been the Food Compass Podcast. Mm-hmm.